Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Consumer Review Report. I'm Diane Rebecca here on WMCK.FM Internet Radio, a service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, Inc., heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. All right, so if you have any ideas on any products or services you would like to hear on the show, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you want to comment on anything that you have heard on the show, about any products or services I talk about, you can also email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. All right, so as I have been saying in the past couple of shows, I will not be going through any recent recalls. You can find any recent recalls on my Facebook page at Consumer Review Report, or you can go directly to www.recalls.gov slash recent if you're concerned about any products that may be recalled. But I did say that I would um, go ahead, if there was any important ones that you probably should know about, I would go ahead and mention uh, Conagra Brands Inc. Um, this has been in the recall list for, I don't know, a couple weeks, a few weeks, uh, but they keep adding things on to their recall list. They're, you know, different products that they sell, they keep adding. So, Conagra Brands Inc. Uh, from Russellville, Arkansas, and Marshall, Missouri establishments are recalling approximately. 276,872 pounds of not ready to eat chicken and turkey bowl products because the products may contain extraneous material, specifically small rocks. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, Food Safety, and Inspection Service announced today, and that was sometime last week, I guess. Uh, the scope of this recall has been expanded to include Healthy Choice Power Bowls Chicken, Feta, and Feral Bowls, Healthy Choice Power Bowls Unwrapped Burrito Scramble Power Bowls, and Healthy Choice Power Bowls Turkey Sausage and Egg Scramble Power Bowls, produced on various dates. The products were produced at two different establishments. These items were shipped to retail locations nationwide and exported to Canada. So if you want more information on all the specific products, UPC codes, and manufacturer dates that fall under this recall, go to www.recall.gov recent and look under the FSIS recalls. The problem was discovered when the firm received additional consumer complaints about rocks being in the products and the firm then notified FSIS of the issue. There have been no confirmed reports of adverse reactions due to the consumption of these products. Anyone concerned about an injury or illness should contact a health care provider. FSIS is concerned that some of these products may be in consumers' freezers. Consumers who have purchased these products are urged not to consume them 
these products should be thrown away or returned to the place of purchase. All right. So if you are concerned that you have any of those products, you can just go to www.recall.gov slash recent and get more information. But I would like to know how are rocks getting in these bowls, especially when they have been produced by two different establishments. Uh, So that is uh, certainly a curious mystery there. All right. So on the show this week, um, since it is becoming the season of summer, I will be talking air conditioners, such as how to find the perfect air conditioner, and we'll also hear what the best portable, yes, I said portable air conditioner is, and I think uh, over the years they may have gotten better, Uh, so we'll see when we air the video audio on the best portable air conditioner, a buying guide, consumer inlet analysis, that'll be later in the show. And then later, later in the show, I'll be talking about electric bikes or e-bikes, as they're otherwise called. I'll be talking about whether an e-bike is right for you and everything you need to know about electric bikes. All right, so let's go ahead and get on with, I have a, some audio from a video called Finding the Perfect Air Conditioner. Now this was posted by Consumer Reports on YouTube. So um, let's go ahead and take a listen. Hey Chris, how's it going? All right, how are you? It is so hot out there. It is. Do you know where the AC lab is? The AC lab is right over here. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Oh, yes. Hey, Jack, that's actually going to be kind of hot in there. Yes! AC lab, and look at all these ACs. Just what I need. Chamber A. I bet you it's nice and cool in there. Hey, Jack, what's going on, man? You looking for something? Yeah, I was looking for a cool place to relax, but (laughs) boy, was I mistaken. This is not the place for that. We actually crank up the temperature in this room to test the performance of air conditioners, right? We're in a climate-controlled chamber here, right? And this room is like the room in your house you want to cool with your AC. And out there is a cushion of air that's warmer that's like the other rooms in your house that maybe don't have a window AC. Got it. So how does this room work, then? Come on, let me show you. This is a magic wall. That's so cool, Eric. Yeah, pretty so sweet. why does the room need to expand like that? Well, uh, different size air conditioners cool different size rooms, so we change the size of the room to test different air conditioners. So what are you doing here now? So these are thermocouples. Each one of these points takes a temperature at a different point in the room, right? So you get the air temperature up by the ceiling, down here by the floor, and we have a bunch of these throughout the room. We average all those temperatures together to get the average for the room. 
For the comfort test, we raise the temperature of the chamber to 90 degrees with nearly 60% humidity. And we also keep track of how quickly an air conditioner can get the whole room down to that temperature that you set it at. So you come home from work, you're all hot and sweaty, you're like, I gotta turn on the AC. How quickly does that happen, right? And we take all that information and turn it into the comfort test score for our ratings. Consumer Reports has some general sizing guidelines to help you choose the right AC unit for your space. Small air conditioning units range from 5,000 to 6,500 BTU, and they cool roughly 100 to 300 square feet. They cost about $150 to $250. Medium-sized air conditioners have a capacity that ranges from 7,000 to 8,200 BTU, and cool rooms that are 250 to 400 square feet, and they cost around $200 to $400. Large ACs range from 9,800 to 12,500 BTU, they cool a room between 350 and 650 square feet. They cost between 350 and $600. So what you're saying, Eric, is that the right AC for me is dependent on the size of the room. Bigger is not always better. You want the correct size AC. If you have really high ceilings, you'll want to factor that in. Windows that face south and the sun is always coming in, that'll make the room hotter. You'll need a bigger AC for that. All these things kind of factor into the size of AC you want. How does an AC actually cool a room? Well, that's a great question, Jack. And I know just the guy to handle it. Dr. James Dickerson, our chief scientific officer. When you first turn on the AC, a fan called a blower starts up. Hot air from the room that you want to cool is sucked into the front of the AC. Next, that hot air passes by a series of evaporator coils that are filled with a liquid refrigerant. Those cold coils warm up because of the hot air that's passing by it. That hot air becomes chilled and is blown back into your room, yielding conditioned air. And after all that science, you feel cool and comfortable. <sighs> Eric, I know how ACs work. I know how you test them. Can we please turn one on? Oh, sure. Why didn't you just say so, Jack? Oh. Easy. <laughs> Yes! Oh. oh, this feels amazing! <laughs>Great. So that's a little bit of a snippet on how to buy the best air conditioner for the space you are trying to air condition. I know we made a tiny mistake some years ago where we have a small room. Um, that we do have central air, but there is a room that the air hardly gets to, whether it's in the winter or the summer. So we decided to buy a window unit. Uh, we bought a small one of the small range uh, air conditioner because the room's not that big. Um, that was the one that was 5,000 to 6,000 BTUs. Uh, what we should have probably bought was the medium one, which was, I guess he said, 8,000 to 9,000 because the sun uh, beats down on the roof where the room is. And so it gets warmer than usual um, because of this. So we should have bought like the medium sized air conditioner. So I guess you got to take all those into uh, consideration as well. All right. So uh, now if you can't, don't want a window, um, you know, window unit or you don't have central air, maybe a portable air conditioner 
would be right for you. So I have audio from a video called Finding the Perfect Air Conditioner. Well, we just, well, we just heard that one. No, I have audio from video, uh, from a video called The Best Portable Air Conditioner. Now, this was posted uh, from Consumer Analysis, and it's supposed to be a buying guide. So maybe this will help you if you are in the market for a portable air conditioner. Maybe this will narrow down the options for you. So let's go ahead and take a listen. Portable air conditioners are inherently inefficient appliances. Now, portable air conditioners do give you a whole AC system in one single portable package, but the major cost for that convenience is the fact that all the cold and hot components of that AC system are all contained within one single unit. And that one single unit is located inside of the room that you are actually actively working to cool. So on a portable AC system, the evaporator does the work of cooling. On this unit here on the table, it would be behind the grill back here. So that evaporator works to cool the air. It pulls in air over the evaporator, the evaporator is cold, and so the air is cooled as it moves over the evaporator. On the flip side of things, the condenser is very hot, and the unit pulls in air through this grill back here over the condenser, and as it pulls that air over the condenser, the condenser is hot, the condenser heats up the air, and then the unit works to remove that air from the room, and it removes that air through the duct on the back, this duct right here. So that duct runs to a bracket in your window, and then the air is allowed to exhaust to the outdoors. Now, the issue here is that the unit is using air from the room that it is conditioning to actually cool the condenser. And it is moving that air over the condenser and exhausting that air out of the room. The issue here is that it is not working to actively replace that air with new air. The air is simply exhausted out of the room. So what ends up happening is that an area of low pressure is created inside of the room that is being conditioned. Relative to that low pressure, the outdoor air is at a much higher pressure. So what ends up happening is that that outdoor air is constantly being pulled into the room and it gets pulled in through any means that it can find into the room, normally and mostly through the window bracket itself. If there are any type of air gaps there, the outdoor air will get pulled into the room and when it gets pulled into the room, it actually adds heat back into the room. Now, the technical term for the outdoor air that is pulled into the room is infiltration air, and that will be an important term that we will discuss later on. Now, infiltration air is the first major inefficiency that we'll talk about. The second major inefficiency is the actual ducting on these units. Uh, the ducting carries that hot air out through the window in the room being conditioned. Now, the ducting itself is normally a very large hose. You can see the size of the hose here. It's a large diameter hose. It's five inches in diameter for most units on the market. And that hose is not well insulated. This hose, as you can see here, it's made of a thin plastic for flexibility so that you can actually take the hose and direct it out to the window bracket. And to aid that flexibility, it has to be made of a thin plastic. It also has to be made of a thin plastic to keep shipping reasonable on these units. They are already very heavy. And if you were to have a highly insulated, heavy hose, that would add to the shipping weight, to the carrying weight for actually carrying around these units and boxes. Uh, so that is another concern there. In any case, the hose that is always used is always made of a thin plastic. And that thin plastic radiates heat back into the room quite readily. So you have another source of heat right there over a large surface area. Remember, it's a five inch diameter hose. So there's a large surface area there where heat is radiated back into the room. And that is the second major portable air conditioner inefficiency. Now, in the past, 
portable air conditioners were tested in highly favorable conditions. In fact, we could not find a specified outdoor temperature for testing these units. So all in all, these units would be tested in an environment where no outdoor temperature was specified. And so manufacturers could really massage the BTU score for these units. So a 14,000 BTU unit would be 14,000 BTUs, but that would be a highly inflated number depending on the conditions that the unit was tested in. And the DOE recognized the issue here, the fact that there wasn't really strict guidelines for testing these units. And so it enforced a new strict guideline, a new testing standard. And that new standard is called seasonally adjusted cooling capacity. So let's take a look at seasonally adjusted cooling capacity. And the best way to look at this is by looking at the actual equations for seasonally adjusted cooling capacity. Now to find seasonally adjusted cooling capacity, uh, we'll just call it SAC for short for the remainder of this video. Uh, so SAC equals ACC sub 95 times 0.2 plus ACC sub 83 times 0.8. So note how there is a 20% weight on ACC 95 and there's an 80% weight on ACC 83. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a bit. Now, moving on to ACC, what is ACC? Obviously, SACC, seasonally adjusted cooling capacity, is highly dependent on ACC, but what is ACC? Now, looking at the equations for ACC, we find two different equations because there's a different equation for the ACC 95 and the ACC 83. For ACC 95, it equals capacity minus Q for the duct minus Q for infiltration air at 95 degrees. ACC 83 involves the exact same equation, but the infiltration air Q number there is for infiltration air at 83 degrees. So immediately it's evident that ACC and by extension SACC involves an equation in which the temperature is absolutely specified. There's no longer any room to not specify any temperatures to inflate any BTU scores. The testing is conducted at 83 degrees at an outdoor air temperature of 83 degrees and at an outdoor air temperature of 95 degrees. This is specified within the equations themselves. There's no wiggle room here. The units have to be tested under these conditions. And so we have a much better, a much more accurate representation for cooling capacity by these equations, by this new standard called seasonally adjusted cooling capacity. Now the weights used here are obviously quite significant. Uh, the ACC 95 is weighted at 20% and the ACC 83 is weighted at 80%. Now, why are they weighted this way? Well, if you were to look deeply into what was involved in coming up with these equations, you would find that there was quite a bit of compromising going on between manufacturers and the DOE to come up with these equations. So if you were to be cynical about things, you would say, these weights are a part of that compromise that maybe the 20% weight on the more difficult to cool temperature is there because it still keeps those BTU numbers relatively high. The less cynical approach here is to look at these numbers and assume that the DOE believes that these units will be used for 20% of the time at those higher outdoor temperatures and for 80% of the time at the lower outdoor temperatures. So the 20% number would represent a heat wave. So only 20% of the time while these units are being used, they're used during a heat wave where temperatures are that high. And for most of the rest of the time, they're used at temperatures that are closer to 83 degrees. That would be the less cynical approach here. Either way, those are the weights that are assigned, but keep in mind that despite the fact that those weights are assigned the way that they are, seasonally adjusted cooling capacity fully takes into account infiltration air, it fully takes into account the heat added by ducting, it takes into account those inefficiencies, and that is why we see large discrepancies between different models on the market that may be in the same traditional BTU size class. For example, two 14,000 BTU units may have significantly different SAC scores just based on the fact that they handle 
those inefficiencies differently. Now, so far we've only discussed single hose units and single hose units represent the majority of the market. There are also dual hose units available and it's important that we just take a little bit of time here to discuss those units. Now, dual hose units do a lot to mitigate that pressure gradient issue we talked about earlier by adding a second hose to the system. So instead of simply having a grill here where air is taking into the unit uh, from the room itself, there is a second hose attached to the AC unit and that second hose also connects to the window bracket and that second hose pulls in air from the outdoors. So that outdoor air is warm, but relative to the condenser, it's still cool. So that warm outdoor air then gets pulled into the system to cool the condenser. That same air is then exhausted out of the system. The room air use is minimal in that scenario and so infiltration air is minimal in that scenario. Uh, now, it is important to note that many units, many dual hose units still have a grill on the back where they do pull in some indoor air to cool the condenser. It's not entirely self-contained. There's no ceiling involved here where it's completely cut off from the room air so that the entire system is just using outdoor air to cool all components and exhaust all of that air. So that is important to note here as well. But overall, compared to a single hose unit, a dual hose unit is going to use significantly less room air to cool the hot components of the AC system. And because it's using a significantly lower volume of air to do so, the impact of infiltration air is much less significant. Now, if we were to look at the equations used for dual hose units, you will notice only slight differences from the equations used for single hose units. The Q variable used for the duct heat is different for the dual hose units, and the capacity variable is also different for dual hose units. So the reason why those variables are different is because we do have a dual hose system involved there versus a single hose system. And because there are two hoses involved instead of a single hose, uh, the parameters, the variables involved there need to be a little bit different. However, the overall idea behind these equations is much the same. The ACC equation, the SACC equation by extension is fully trying to take into account those two inefficiencies. Q heat added by the ducting and Q heat added by the infiltration air. That is still something that the dual hose equations need to take into account, and they certainly do, as you can see here. Now, a lot of consumer publications, a lot of online blogs, and so on and so forth, recommend dual hose units over single hose units simply because they are dual hose units. Now, while dual hose units do reduce that infiltration air variable, even though they reduce the heat added by infiltration air because they have that second hose, they do have certain disadvantages in their design as well. The first of which is the fact that when you add a second hose to the system, now you have an additional hose adding heat back into the room. Remember on a single hose unit, this exhaust is carrying hot air. The exhaust gets hot, it radiates heat back into the room. On a dual hose unit, you have a second duct bringing air into the room and that duct also gets hot that duct also radiates heat back into the room. So instead of having one duct radiating heat back into the room, you now have two ducts radiating heat back into the room. When you add a second hose to the system, you also have more areas where air can enter back into the room. When this hose is connected to the window bracket, there are tiny air gaps everywhere. When you add a second hose to the system, there are more air gaps created. Now, you can minimize those air gaps by adding tape, by adding insulation, weather stripping, and so on and so forth, things that we recommend that you do anyway. Uh, so you can definitely minimize the air gaps there. However, if you were just to quickly install the unit and you were to use it as is, as it comes right out of the box, as the manufacturer recommends you install it through the manual, the dual hose system would have the potential for more air gaps and therefore the potential to 
bring more outdoor air into the room just through the addition of those air gaps. The third disadvantage here is the fact that dual hose units cool the condenser by outdoor air. Now, like we said earlier, outdoor air is cooler than the condenser itself, and that's why it can be used to cool the condenser. However, cool indoor air, air that has already been cooled by the unit, is going to be much colder than the condenser, and so it's gonna be able to cool that condenser much more efficiently. So yes, while the fact that that air is used is inefficient in terms of the fact that it is evacuated out of the room and creates that pressure gradient, that's an inefficiency. The actual cool air being used there is quite efficient to cool the condenser, while on a dual hose unit, the warm outdoor air that is used is not nearly as efficient for cooling the condenser. Finally, and this is a minor complaint here, is the fact that with a dual hose unit, you do have more difficult installation. You do have less flexibility in installation. Remember, this duct is connected to the window bracket through a hole in that bracket, and there is an extension on the bracket that extends it to fit your window perfectly. And on a single hose unit, there's only one hole in that bracket. So the extension there, there's quite a bit of flexibility in terms of how far you can extend and how low you can extend it. On a dual hose unit, there's two holes in that window bracket. So there's much less room for flexibility in terms of how far you can extend the extension out of the primary window bracket there. Uh, secondly, there's also two hoses running, two hoses that you have to connect, two hoses that are running there. Uh, versus a single hose, there is just more involved there with the installation of a dual hose unit. Now, any one of these disadvantages for a dual hose unit is not necessarily that major of a disadvantage. However, when you combine all these disadvantages together, you more clearly see why so few manufacturers still manufacture dual hose units. Uh, consumers are constantly asking us, why are not more manufacturers making dual hose units when they have this reputation of being so much more efficient than single hose units? Why are manufacturers still choosing to make single hose units when dual hose units are allegedly so much more efficient? And now if you consider these disadvantages that we just went over, hopefully you can better understand why so few manufacturers still make dual hose units. It's because of the reasons that we just outlined. Now, before we continue, we absolutely want to clear up the misconception about dual hose units. It is inaccurate to say that a dual hose unit is a better portable air conditioner than a single hose unit only because it is a dual hose unit. That is simply an incorrect statement to make. Seasonally adjusted cooling capacity fully takes into account the inefficiencies of single hose units. It fully takes them into account. Infiltration air is the major disadvantage there with a single hose unit. And infiltration air is absolutely accounted for with seasonally adjusted cooling capacity. So when you are comparing a single hose unit to a dual hose unit, you don't have to think outside the box here and try to evaluate the difference between these two units based on whether one has a single hose or a dual hose. Simply look at seasonally adjusted cooling capacity. It is fully going to take into account those inefficiencies of single hose units. It is fully going to take into account the inefficiencies of dual hose units. So when you compare two units, compare their seasonally adjusted cooling capacity, let that be the driving force behind your purchase decision, not whether a particular unit is a single hose unit or a dual hose unit. If a particular unit has a higher seasonally adjusted cooling capacity than another, it is the better performing unit. It will cool a room faster. It will cool the room to lower temperatures because it has a higher seasonally adjusted cooling capacity. Whether it is a single hose or dual hose unit does not matter, it will cool faster. So what that means is if you have a dual hose unit that has a lower sack than a single hose unit, it will not cool as well. It simply will not. We physically tested the Winter Arc 14S, a 14,000 BTU dual hose unit. We physically tested this LG on the table here, a 14,000 BTU single hose unit, and the LG outperformed the Winter. It outperformed it quite easily, 
Why did it outperform it? Because it has a higher seasonally adjusted cooling capacity. It has a seasonally adjusted cooling capacity of 10,000 BTUs, while the winter dual hose unit has a seasonally adjusted cooling capacity of only 8,900 BTUs. That was the difference between those two units, not the fact of whether one was a single hose unit or a dual hose unit or vice versa. That seasonally adjusted cooling capacity is the factor that you need to consider here. And with that information in mind, let's take a look at all of the models currently in the market and see what we can do in terms of recommendations for particular models here. So looking at all the models on the market currently, we see quite a bit of variance here. We see 14,000 BTU units that have a seasonally adjusted cooling capacity between 7,500 and 10,000 BTUs. We see 12,000 BTU units with a seasonally adjusted cooling capacity between 6,500 and 7,200 BTUs. We see 10,000 BTUs with also a range of SAC, and we see 8,000 BTU units also with a range of SAC values there. So we see a range in every category, and what that allows us to do is to distinguish between different models in each size class. And we do make recommendations in each size class in separate videos and separate online guides as well. However, for this video, we want to look at the absolute best models on the market. And in determining what the absolute best models on the market are, we have to think about what are the best models for you? What are the best models for your particular application? Now, normally what most other consumer publications will do, what most manufacturers recommend you do, is look at a chart. They will give you a chart of traditional BTUs, so 14,000, 12,000, 10,000, et cetera, and then they will have a square footage next to each respective BTU number. And then they will tell you to compare the square footage of the room that you were trying to cool to the BTUs involved here, the traditional BTUs, and then choose a portable air conditioner based on that chart. So let's say you have a 500 square foot room. Well, a 14,000 BTU unit is the recommended size there. And similarly for smaller rooms, a lower BTU unit is recommended. Now, this is where we have to dispel our second myth of the day here. Uh, earlier, we dispelled the myth that dual hose units are always the better option. They simply are not. Uh, and here we have to dispel the second myth. And that is that you can use a BTU calculator, that you can use a BTU size chart to determine the area of coverage for a particular portable AC unit. Uh, the fact is that that is simply not possible. Remember, these are inherently inefficient appliances. You cannot size a portable air conditioner the same way that you can size a window air conditioner, the same way that you can size a central air conditioning system. It simply doesn't work that way. These units are inherently inefficient. They are inherently underpowered. And for that reason, they cannot be sized in the same way. On top of those reasons, there are several other reasons why we do not recommend that you use a size chart to size a particular portable air conditioner to the room that you need cooling for. Uh, so let's look at those reasons now. Now, the first reason that we're gonna list here is the climate that the unit is used in. Those size charts, BTU size charts, BTU calculators, they do not take into account the climate that the unit is used in. You may live in a climate where it gets to 80 degrees on the hottest days, maybe 90 degrees on the hottest days. You need a portable air conditioner for a room that sees outdoor temperatures that don't exceed 80 or 90 degrees. Maybe you live in a climate where outdoor temperatures exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit. In that situation, the climate is completely different, the outdoor environment is completely different, and your BTU requirements would be completely different. BTU sizing charts do not take into account these variables at all. So that is the first thing there. Secondly, we have the number, the size, the orientation of windows in the room. A west-facing room is going to get much hotter in the afternoon than a room that is not west-facing. A room with a lot of windows is gonna get a lot hotter than a room that doesn't have a lot of windows. 
A room that has large windows is gonna get hotter than a room that has small windows. All of these variables are not taken into account by a BTU size chart or calculator. Next, we have the location of the room. Is it a second story room? If so, it's gonna get a lot hotter than a room that's on the first floor. So there we have yet another variable involved here that a size chart simply cannot account for. We also have the insulation or ceiling in the room. Maybe the room is in a home that is brand new that has terrific insulation. That room is gonna be a lot easier to cool than a room in an older home. Maybe the room has poor insulation. In that type of environment, you're gonna need more BTUs. Again, a size chart is not gonna help here. There's also other variables like the size and number of furniture in the room. Maybe you have a lot of furniture in the room. That's gonna drastically reduce the volume of air that needs to be cooled in the room. So maybe you need a lower BTU unit because you have much less volume than the square footage would seem to indicate. Maybe there are certain appliances in the room that contribute heat to the room. Those appliances are adding heat to the room. Maybe there are electronics that add heat to the room. Those electronics are constantly adding to the heat to the room. Maybe it's something as simple as a TV. It's still adding heat to the room. And that is something that is going to change the cooling capacity required for the room. Other factors involve how you actually install the AC unit. Uh, a lot of these units today come with weather stripping. Many users don't install the weather stripping. You may need a higher BTU or lower BTU unit, depending on whether you install that weather stripping or not. Things also depend on how you use the unit on a daily basis. If you turn the unit on early in the day, then maybe you can get away with a lower BTU unit. If you want to turn the unit on only when it gets really hot in the hottest part of the day, then you will absolutely need a higher BTU unit. So there, just in how you use the unit, that impacts how many BTUs are required for your application. So there are many other factors as well. The factors are in fact almost infinite, all the different variables involved here that could change depending on the application. And so you can see how the situation here is complex. The point is that it can go all the way from a highly challenging environment in which it is very difficult to cool a room, all the way down to a non-challenging environment where it's quite easy to cool a room. And that challenge, the challenge of cooling that room, that operates independently of the square footage of the room. Square footage is a major factor here, but how difficult the room is to cool and how many BTUs are required to cool that room is heavily impacted by all these other factors. And a BTU calculator, a square footage chart, simply doesn't take into account all those other factors. So what are you to do with this information? If you cannot use a chart, if you cannot use a calculator, what are you supposed to do when you buy a portable AC unit? Which one are you supposed to buy? What size class are you supposed to be looking at here? And here we have good news for you. The fact is that you really only have two different options here. You can go with a high capacity unit, a high SAC unit, or you can go with a low capacity unit, a low seasonally adjusted cooling capacity unit. Those are really your only two options. We tested several units in a 150 square foot room, and we saw a threshold at 9,000 BTUs on the seasonally adjusted cooling capacity scale. So units that had more than 9,000 BTUs of seasonally adjusted cooling capacity, they cooled the room very quickly, very effectively, and to very low temperatures quite easily. Units that had less than 9,000 seasonally adjusted cooling capacity BTUs, those units took much longer and they could not get the room to as low of a temperature. So we saw a distinct difference right at that threshold of 9,000 BTUs on the seasonally adjusted cooling capacity scale. So if you are looking to cool a room quickly, effectively, in most situations, a challenging room, a larger room, then we would highly advise a unit that has 9,000 or more BTUs on the SAC scale. If you need to cool a room that is smaller, that is maybe not as challenging to cool, then you can get away with a sub 9,000 BTU 
on the SAC scale unit. Now, if you are buying a unit that has less than 9,000 BTUs on the SAC scale, you really can buy all the way down to 6,500 BTUs on the SAC scale. So what that means is that really all 10,000 BTU units, all 12,000 BTU units by the traditional scale there, those units are all in that category. So really you can get away with a 10,000 BTU unit uh, for those lesser applications. For the more challenging applications, you have limited options when it comes to units that have more than 9,000 BTUs on the SAC scale. In terms of specific model recommendations, we recommend the LG LP1419 IVSM, the unit we have on the table here today, as the number one portable air conditioner currently on the market. This unit is gonna give you the best chance to cool a larger room. It's gonna give you the best chance to cool a difficult to cool room. It's gonna give you the best chance to cool such rooms effectively with a portable air conditioner. If you were to move to a lower SAC unit, you would have much less of a chance. You may not be able to cool it at all. This happens. There are many users that buy a lower SAC unit, they take it home, they think that it fits the square footage of their room, and then it simply just doesn't work to cool. By going with this high of a SAC of a unit, this is actually the highest SAC unit currently on the market, you give yourself the best chance to actually effectively cool the room, no matter the circumstances, no matter all of those other factors that we discussed earlier. Our number two recommendation is the New Air NAC14KWH02. Now, the New Air has the second highest SAC of any unit on the market at 9,500 BTUs. And that New Air still falls in the category of 9,000 plus BTUs uh, that did very well in our testing. We tested the New Air and it did very well in our testing. So the new air is recommended as the number two option. Between the LG and the new air, uh, the LG is definitely better. It has other benefits as well that we discuss in its individual review. Uh, however, the new air is a strong second place. You really can't go wrong with either one of these units. Now, if you cannot afford a high SAC unit like the LG or the new air, we recommend a 10,000 BTU unit on the traditional scale. Again, units with sub 9,000 BTUs on the SAC scale uh, are all gonna perform very similarly. They performed very similarly on our tests. So what that means is the best 12,000 BTU units and the best 10,000 BTU units, they perform quite similarly. So for a 10,000 BTU unit, we recommend the LG LP1017WSR or the LG LP1018WNR. Either one of those units have the highest SAC for a 10,000 BTU unit. So the good thing here is that they have that 10,000 BTU price. And even though they have the 10,000 BTU price, they have a very high seasonally adjusted cooling capacity for a 10,000 BTU unit. So either one of those units would re be recommended as the third option in terms of our overall recommendations. Now it's important for us to note here that the exact model recommendations will change over time. There are constantly new models released to market. There will constantly be new models released to market that have a higher SAC value than even these models that we're talking about today. And if that happens, when that happens, we will list those models in the description to this video. So definitely check that out if you are interested in our latest recommendations. Now, we do want to acknowledge the fact that you may be hesitant to spend a large amount of money on a portable air conditioner, especially if you go with our number one or number two recommendation. However, keep in mind these three things. First of all, you're already spending a lot of money on a portable air conditioner. You are spending hundreds of dollars on even the lowest BTU unit. That is a sizable investment. So by moving up, your budget a little bit, you are getting a much better unit for still a high price. So keep in mind that number one, you are still spending a lot of money here, regardless of whether you go with a lower BTU unit. Secondly, a lower BTU unit is not going to have any other advantages that you think it may have. It's not gonna be any less. All 
All right. So I don't know why it just cut out like that, but um, maybe it gave you some education on whether or not uh, it'd be better to, you know, buy a portable, buy a window unit. Um, I was looking at the prices of the portables and um, they're pretty high up there. But I think uh, maybe they might help if you want to open a window some days instead of running the air conditioner because I know with the window unit you got to take it in and take it out if you want to open the windows so that's the only benefit I saw anyways otherwise they're pretty expensive um, as opposed to a window unit all right so I hope uh, that gave you a little education on portable air conditioners Um, uh, that's another option that you could go to cool your home this summer So we're going to go on to electric bikes or e-bikes because everybody's outside. Everybody's wanting to ride bikes. So uh, is this, uh, is an e-bike right for you? Uh, There's an article in Consumer Reports magazine. On an electric bike, a rider can glide uphill without breaking its sweat. Either a battery-powered pedal assist will kick in, or you can activate the throttle for a boost by twisting or pushing a mechanism on the handlebars. It's a little wonder, then, that the sales of e-bikes in the U.S. grew more than eightfold between 2014 and 2017, and consumer curiosity is on the rise, despite their high prices. We evaluated a slice of the wide variety of e-bikes riding five models ranging from $600 to $2,600 around a hilly loop course on CR's test grounds. The first thing to consider is how far an e-bike can go on a single charge. Uh, In our test, or CR's test, all went between 15 and 30 miles before running out of juice. When the battery's charge drains, an e-bike works like any other bicycle, powered solely by your pedaling. But e-bikes tend to be heavy. Some we tested were almost unrideable when the battery was fully spent. So investigate how a bike rides without assistance. And don't forget safety. On average, e-bike riders go about 3 miles per hour faster than traditional riders. All cyclists, regardless of bike type, need a properly fitted helmet. And so here's some prices. Nocto Fashion is at $600. Electra Townie Go 7D is at $1,500. Jetson Adventure $1,300. And Rad Runner Electric Utility Bike $1,300. So let's go ahead and go to our audio from a video found on YouTube called electric bikes everything you need to know and this was posted by the verge so we here at the verge love electric rideables hoverboards skateboards scooters motorcycles mopeds unicycles tricycles you name it we've ridden it but i'm here to tell you why i think electric bikes in particular are more than just a fun tech fad I think they could actually be the future of transportation. But that said, there's a lot out there, and you don't want to get fooled, so here's some stuff that you need to know about e-bikes. Obviously, e-bikes are not new. They've been around for decades. And if you live in China or Europe, it's a good bet that e-bikes are already a way of life for you. 
In Europe, for example, e-bikes have long helped older adults maintain independence and are just now really blowing up with younger riders. But here in the US, e-bikes are still pretty niche. They only account for 4% of total bike sales. Compare that to more bike-friendly countries like the Netherlands, where there are more e-bikes sold than regular bikes. Overall, experts predict that worldwide sales will hit $23.8 billion by 2025. But Americans are slowly coming around. Sales of electric bikes in the US have grown more than eightfold since 2014. It took a long time to get to this point. Now, one of the first patents for an electric bike was registered in 1895 by an inventor named Ogden Bolton. Now, Bolton didn't actually end up making or selling any of his bikes, but amazingly, some of the same design details can be found in e-bikes today. A rear hub motor with a battery centrally mounted on the frame. Now, I know what you're thinking. What the hell is he talking about? Rear hub motor, amps and volts. I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's talk about the basics before we get to why e-bikes are the future of transportation. So generally speaking, e-bikes are bicycles with a battery-powered assist that comes through when you pedal, or in some cases, use a throttle. Pushing on the pedal activates a small motor that gives you a boost, so when you're zipping up a hill or cruising over rough terrain, you don't have to break a sweat. Twisting a throttle does the same thing, but without pedaling. There are two types of motors. There's the mid-drive, which is located in the middle of the bike, usually between the two pedals. And then there's the hub motor, which is located in the center of either the front or the rear wheel. There are pros and cons to both types of motors. Hub drives have been around forever and tend to be cheaper and more versatile. They're really excellent motors for anyone needing a reliable e-bike for long, mostly flat commuting. Mid-drives are usually smaller and lighter and can allow for greater torque than hub drives, making them well-suited for hilly areas and off-road use. Their center position on the bike also creates a more balanced ride. And changing a tire on a mid-drive bike is usually less of a pain in the ass. E-bikes also tend to use different types of sensors to determine how best to dole out power. There are two types, torque sensors and cadence sensors. Torque sensors regulate the motor based on how hard you're pushing the pedals, while cadence sensors work off of how fast you pedal. Good bikes use torque sensors while the low enders have cadence only, and a lot of bikes use both. I highly recommend testing out both types of motors before buying an e-bike to see which is the best fit for you. Think about how you plan on using the bike. Commuting, off-roading, touring? The better e-bike brands usually match the appropriate motor placement with the type of bike they're selling. Most mountain bikes come with mid-range motors, while the majority of commuter bikes sold in hillless Amsterdam are hub-based. They see me rolling, they hating, trying to catch me riding dirty. Now let's talk power. Manufacturers will often offer power ratings for a variety of reasons. Until recently, power ratings were a way for bike companies to dance around Europe's strict importation laws, which prohibited anything stronger than 250 watts. But now the continent allows the sale of bikes with way more powerful motors, which is good because it allows bikes to be seen as a viable alternative to cars. Still, power ratings can be pretty subjective, and you can probably get away with just ignoring them. To get a better idea of how much maximum power you'll actually feel, check to see if they list the volts and the amps. Multiply those two together to get the watt hours, or the number of watts that can be delivered in an hour. This gives you a great sense of how much range you'll get. For example, Rad Power Bike's excellent cargo bike, the Rad Wagon, has a battery pack that is 48 volts and 14 amp hours. 48 times 14 equals 
672 watt hours. If you're thrifty with your energy usage, each mile you travel will cost you about 20 watt hours. Therefore, a 672 watt hour pack will get you about 34 miles of range. All right, let's talk classes. There are three classes of e-bikes in the US. Class one is pedal assist with no throttle. Class two is throttle assisted, but with a maximum speed of 20 miles per hour. And a class three is pedal assist only, no throttle, but with a maximum speed of 28 miles per hour. In Europe, they only have two classes. Class one, which has a maximum speed of 25 kilometers an hour with no helmet required. Class two is 1,000 watt plus motors capable of going 45 kilometers an hour, require a helmet, and can't be ridden on bike paths. They're basically motorcycles. So where can you buy an e-bike? Well, your local bike store is honestly your best bet. You're gonna get a selection that's been curated by the owners, and the folks that work there are gonna have answers to all your burning questions. Amazon is obviously another place, but there's some pretty serious trade-offs that you have to consider. Your bike could arrive pretty banged up, and the companies that sell e-bikes on Amazon are a little bit ephemeral. Here one day, gone the next. It's not just Amazon, of course. A majority of the e-bikes sold in the US are just cobbled together from off-the-shelf Chinese-made parts that you can find in the catalog. And if that sounds easy, it's because it is. It helps explain why there are like a billion e-bike companies on Kickstarter and Indiegogo trying to impress you with their flashy designs and futuristic tech. Many don't come with warranties or any customer support, and it's very likely that you're buying a Chinese model that's just been rebranded for Western marketing and sold at a markup. If you find an e-bike that you like, an interesting test is to search the bike specs on Alibaba to see if something similar is being sold in Asia. It might even be cheaper. All right, so I promised to explain why I think that e-bikes are the future of transportation. So here we go. First, it lowers the barrier to biking. So if you're someone who's older or you're stressed out about the strains of biking, it really lowers the barrier and it's easier to justify getting on a bike and just ride. You're more likely to ditch your car or delete your Uber app if you know you're gonna get to where you wanna go without getting sweaty and stressed out. And look, if you're worried about electric bikes taking all the fun out of cycling, well, you're wrong. A study of the cognitive and psychological effects of outdoor cycling actually found the same results for e-bikes and traditional bikes. Now let's say climate change has got you down. Electric bikes are way more sustainable than electric cars. They're gonna make our cities more livable and they're gonna help clear up traffic congestion. So as our cities are becoming more congested, some companies are turning to e-bikes to make their deliveries. Domino's Pizza recently announced they're gonna be using rad power bikes to make pizza deliveries in some cities. UPS is using electric cargo bikes. German delivery company DPD is gonna be using these really cute looking mini trucks that are actually e-bikes in disguise. E-bikes are changing the way that businesses are doing business. So the other day I was riding an e-bike to work and a remarkable thing happened. Well, first I wasn't killed, which in a city as deadly for bikers as New York is a minor miracle. But more importantly, I got to the office super quick, much faster than if I had taken the subway and I wasn't a sweaty, stressed out mess when I arrived. Here, e-bikes are almost exclusively used by food delivery workers and it got me thinking about how far behind the rest of the world the US is when it comes to bikes. We see them more as recreation than as transportation. Something to be used in fair weather and not in the rain and the snow like the Dutch do. But come on, our US women's team just beat them in the World Cup. Surely we can compete in the saddle as well. 
Our streets are designed for cars, and pedestrians and bikers are really just an afterthought. But e-bikes can open up a whole world, especially for people with different abilities. Look, they're not going to solve everything, but I can guarantee that once you start riding, you're not going to want to stop. Did we make that word up? Is that a real word? Rideable? It's like a lunchable. But you ride it. <laughs> what the hell is that thing? Maybe it'll be really quick. All right, so does that make you want to go out and get an e-bike? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, if I wanted to ride around in, uh, you know, on the New Boston Trail or the Westmoreland Heritage Trail, I might enjoy that. But having the hills around here in southwestern Pennsylvania and around Pittsburgh, I don't know if it would go very far if I tried to commute to work with it. <laughs> Honestly, I can't imagine riding up and down Mossside Boulevard. And then when you get there, is there a way to charge up your bike so you can get back home? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I would imagine it would take a lot of power to get up some of these hills. And so if it takes a lot of power, that means it drains faster, right? So I don't know about the commuting part, but, you know, maybe having a little bit of fun, that wouldn't be bad either. And also, if you ride it a lot, if you were planning on commuting as, and also riding recreational, maybe the prices justify it. But I don't see, ride, you know, paying $1,500 or $1,300 for one of these bikes if I was just going to go and ride it on the trails. Uh, I just don't see how it would be possible to ride them on the hills around here and you know if if you, it runs out of juice then you are having to pedal you know and if you're riding up and down these hills it's very difficult to to pedal so I don't see what the point is if it if it runs out of juice and you got to pedal anyways uh, you know 15 to 30 miles before running out of juice, that's what they say. But is it the same when you're on these Pittsburgh hills? So that's something to consider, I guess. Um, but we are at the end of our show. So if you have any comments or questions about what you heard here on the show today, namely air conditioning and electric bikes, you can email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, if you have any ideas of any products or services you would like to hear on the show, you can also email me at consumerreviewreport at gmail.com. I'm also on um, Facebook at Consumer Review Report and on Twitter at CRR in McKeesport. Also, again, we do not mention the recent recalls unless it's a very important one anymore on the show. So you can go to my Facebook page at Consumer Review Report and catch up on those if you need to know about those. So this is the Consumer Review Report on WMCK.FM Internet Radio, the service of Tube City Online, Tube City Community Media, 
heard Sunday at 4 p.m., Tuesday at noon, and Thursday at 9 a.m. So, I'm Diane Rebecca, wishing everyone a safe and good week.